we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast brought to you across Australia and further afield from our lovely island of Tasmania. This week we're putting the M in STEM, talking about medicine, that's for science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. We like to give them their own M. The show's proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things that they're up to as our local community radio station. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Smith, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palo and Pakana people, as we record in Nipalina on Nutruita. And I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay respects to elders past and present. Today we're going to be talking to one of my very fun colleagues and friends, pals, whatever you want to say, Dr. Andrew Black, who's a local cardiologist and is very passionate about heart health and how we improve care delivery to help more Tasmanians. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Neve. So Ryan, tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, so Andrew's the clinical lead for the Tasmanian STEMI network, and he's also the principal investigator for the Victorian and Australian Cardiac Outcomes Registries. He's also actively involved in continued cardiovascular research, including lecturing at the, Ta- the University of Tasmania, and he's also doing his PhD while working as a cardiologist in the hospital. Busy man. Yeah, so Andrew, why have you chosen to work in the field of cardiology? Okay, Ryan. I'll just I'll just make one slight correction there. I'm the principal investigator for the Tasmanian for the Tasmanian data aspect of VCOR. But um, uh, yeah, so cardiology. Um, interestingly, actually, I was looking at orthopedic surgery when I was a RMO, and uh, there was drinks for the basic physician training. Uh, program and that that's what initially got me interested in the in the idea of hearing about physician training but um, uh, subsequent to that cardiology really appealed for a whole variety of reasons it's a um, it's a really nice specialty that has uh, a variety of acute and and chronic uh, medical conditions. So, if we compare the the kind of pointy end of the people having heart attacks and and, and coming in with with significant emergencies, that's that's a, a, a you know a really kind of exciting and challenging aspect of the specialty. And then you go all the way through to, for example, a really lovely lady who I've looked after for the last uh, for the last ten years with with uh, progressive heart failure and other issues, um, and then being able to sort of manage her through the whole process of her illness, including um, her, her sort of unfortunate deterioration recently, and she actually passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, so so you've got that really kind of quick, rapid aspect of things, but there's also the the patients that you get to know over a long period of time, which is a really rewarding aspect of it as well. I think as, as someone who's, who's sort of interested in, in the research and academic aspect of things, cardiology has a really fantastic evidence base behind it. So because cardiovascular disease is very prevalent, uh, it's, it's um, especially that lends itself to running very large clinical trials. So we do have very, very good data behind a lot of the treatments that we have. Um, and that means that you can have confidence when you're sort of making treatment decisions for individual patients that what you're doing is likely to be in their best interest. So that's the kind of variety of appeals. And what drew you to wanting to do your own research as a clinician? Because, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty busy. Re- yeah, reasonably busy. Um, the, so, so I guess 
I guess when I started cardiology, um, I really liked the idea of intervention, which is basically putting stents in blocked arteries. So it's 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 fun. It's a fun aspect of the uh, of the job, and I think it's something that appeals to a lot of cardiology trainees. Um, and then I, you know, I still find that fun, but but I guess I've seen a lot of people over the last ten years now where. They come in with a heart attack and it's a big sort of unexpected event. Um, but actually when when you look at their previous history, the, the, there have been opportunities perhaps to modify that process. So they might have seen their GP five years before and had quite high blood pressure. Uh, they might have a family history that's sort of unrecognised. Uh, their cholesterol might be sort of eight and it gets checked every couple of years and it stays at eight, but there's uncertainty about whether to treat it. So what I see, I guess, in cardiology is there's a lot of really fantastic treatments that work well. But what we don't really do a lot of the time is design our systems in a way that actually implements a lot of these treatments in a timely way in order to either prevent events occurring in the first place or to better manage them when they occur. Um, and so that's that's the area that really interests me is is the idea of um, develop, you know service development and improving the way we deliver services. And obviously embedding a research program into that is a good idea, partly because it helps to then convince other people to, to, to take on the same initiatives. Awesome. So do you think... Coming through that like med training, clinician training, and then having that passion sparked for like, actually, maybe if we just tweak the services, we might prevent the number of stents we're having to put in. Did your training support you to do that? Or has it kind of been something you found along the way, which has encouraged you to pursue a PhD? Right, it's definitely something I've found along the way. Um, I, I mean, I'm fortunate that at the Royal Hobart to work in a reasonably academic um, department in cardiology. So there's um, there's a, a few of the, the the consultants have had uh, quite significant academic careers as well. So it's been a it's been a concept that's been been supported. Um, and I, I think I think for me, we were just just sort of talking before about the motivation to 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 do a higher degree. So a lot of people, particularly with cardiology training, um, will finish their advanced training, do a fellowship, and then perhaps do a PhD after there with with the goal of getting the qualification to then gain a particular job. The really nice thing about doing this as a, as much as I hate to say it, as a mature ager um, is that really the the PhD, I think I get a lot more out of it. I've, I, I'm sort of sitting in the in the clinical job that I want to stay in, um, and what the PhD does is it gives me access to you know people like yourselves uh, who who are really established researchers, and that's not something that is really trained through medical school or or even basic or advanced training. So Andrew and I worked together on a recent project that we had some funding for from the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation, which is what we're shining a light on for this mini-series. And in just a moment, we'll be talking to Andrew Morse about his specific research in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about heart health. My name's Ryan, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Andrew Black, from the University of Tasmania and the Royal Hobart Hospital. So, Andrew, what sorts of research are you currently working on? So, Ryan, at, at our main area that we've been, been sort of working on for a while is the Rapid Access Chest Pain Clinic at the Royal. Um, now, that was established back in 2014, and it was based on a model that I'd had some exposure to during a fellowship in Canada, but it's it's used quite a lot in the UK as well. Um, and and essentially, what this is, if someone has if someone has new chest pain, so if anyone has chest pain right now, for example, the best place to go to is to a hospital emergency department to have that assessed. Um, in the emergency department, they'll have some investigations like ECGs, some blood tests, looking for heart attack. And if that you know if all of those are normal, then they can usually be discharged and, and managed as an outpatient. 
A lot of those patients won't have a serious cardiac condition as long as the initial tests are reassuring, but certainly some of them will, and the consequences of missing that can be catastrophically bad. So it's important they have some sort of follow-up. The situation that we had at the Royal Hobart going back pre-2014 and and would be similar in probably most areas around the country is that patients are referred in a reasonably ad hoc manner. Sometimes they'll follow up with their GP, sometimes they'll come back to a cardiology clinic or a general medicine clinic, and they'll often have uh, potentially multiple different investigations and bounce between different clinics. So We followed, for example, um, patient journeys in the year before we set up the chest pain clinic, Um, and sometimes they would have up to five clinic appointments, two or three investigations, and some of these individual patient journeys lasted for two years after a single episode of chest pain, so there was a huge inefficiency. So the idea of the rapid access clinic is that we see everyone that's referred within uh, within ideally two weeks. Sometimes it's a bit longer than that, but generally within two weeks. We see them once. And that's a really important aspect of this clinic is it, you know, as soon as you start seeing lots of review patients in your clinic, the clinic becomes full, um, waiting times blow out and you're not seeing new patients anymore. So the ones, that, you know, the patients arguably at most risk, which are the new ones, are the ones that you don't see. Anyway, so we see the patients once and we order an investigation if they need one. Uh, most, most people do, 60 to 80% of people have some sort of test, like an exercise test or something like that. If that's abnormal, we can investigate them further from there. But probably 90% plus of the patients, that's that that's the matter shut at that point. The investigation's normal and, and they can be reassured and followed up in the community. Um, the, other, the other aspect of the clinic that we really wanted to capture is that whilst most of the patients don't have a cardiac diagnosis, a lot of them have a fair hand of risk factors that can put them at risk of problems down the track. So things like high cholesterol, um, high, you know, high blood pressure, smoking, family history, diabetes. And if we're only addressing the chest pain and not addressing those risk factors, we're really missing an opportunity to prevent these events happening down the track. And if you look at people who come through a chest pain clinic, their risk of events over the next 30 days is fairly small. Um, But in some of the earlier studies from the UK, the risk of events over five years is high, and that's because of the burden of risk factors. So it's it's a case of making sure they're safe with their initial chest pain, um, but also trying to opportunistically manage these risk factors um, when they first present. Wonderful. So, Andrew, (coughs) the chest pain clinic sounds awesome. So I think... You know, we're working together to look at what are the core components of delivering this clinic optimally for patients to reduce those investigations. You know, I wonder, can, does 80% of people need to do an exercise stress test, for example, is one of the things that variables around in my mind. But um, could I just clarify that one of the things that you do to look at whether or not this works is you look at patient records across their whole journey with the health system, but not necessarily with their GP and it's not really a randomised control trial research project. It's like real care delivery. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the the study that we published a few years ago was looking at the experience of patients coming through the chest pain clinic. Uh, so we evaluated that prospectively and then compared it to a historical control cohort of patients coming through the general cardiology clinic that would have been eligible for RACPAC had it been available. So it's it, it's really comparing, as you say, that, that real world cohort. Uh, I mean, look, in some ways it would be possible to to design a randomised clinical trial, but I think we're sort of getting to the point now where there's enough RACPAC literature um, that that it would be difficult, you know, it would be very difficult to ethically assign someone to review in a... you know, sort of a, a, well, a well-run clinic within two weeks versus being bounced around a general cardiology service over, you know, three months to five years. So I think that, that yeah, I think this is probably the best data we're, 
we're going to get, but but no, it's not not randomized. Yes, but technically, you could probably look at um, real world randomization where you compare just the prevalence and number of tests and things like that that your patients do and how long their wait times are to Launceston, for example, who don't have a rapid access chest pain clinic, and that would give you not an intentional control, but for for ease of comparison, you could look at the differences if you needed to. I just think this is such an exciting project because I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that emergency department burden is increasing and this helps get patients discharged for emergency really quickly. Chest pain is the second most likely cause of emergency department presentations. But also what I really love is that you're embedding um, this proactive approach to engaging patients because it's pretty scary to present to emergency department with chest pain, I'd imagine. It's a good time to then say, oh, Next time you might not be so lucky, though. It's, it's yeah, it's it's definitely a good chance to engage patients, and and the discussion that we try to have with them um, is is really trying to put their individual risk factors in terms of their absolute risk. So, so for people that aren't aware of absolute risk scores, it's it's essentially a, a very kind of. I guess it's kind of a gross way of estimating what their risk of heart attack or stroke is over the next sort of five years, and and you can do this easily yourself. You can you can look at the um, CVD check uh, CVD checks through the National Heart Foundation's website, and it just asks your age, um, age, sex, uh, blood uh, blood cholesterol levels, blood pressure, smoking status, and it'll give you an idea of where you're at. Now, this. This really just aims to focus prevention resources at those most likely to benefit. So obviously, if your risk of heart attack in the next five years is 1%, you're not going to benefit a whole lot from any intervention. Whereas if your risk is 25%, then you potentially benefit substantially by things uh, like treating cholesterol, treating blood pressure. Um, but what's really surprised me in the clinic is when we have a discussion about this number with patients is that the, they really... the patient's insight into what their risk is is often minimal at the start of the conversation so so people will be very surprised and I've had people I don't deliberately try and make people cry um, but, but but I've had people actually in tears at how high their cardiovascular risk is and but you can you, you can spin that so once you explain to people what their risk is you can then relook at the calculator and say well if we do you know if you're able to stop smoking and we're happy to put these things in place to help you do that um, and if you're interested in treating your cholesterol for example then we can actually drop your risk potentially from 25% to say 5% and then it goes green and everyone's happy again and people stop crying. Um, so, uh, and of course we've studied that in, in, in that's actually we've studied it in a randomised trial versus, versus usual care. So that absolute risk approach does seem to result in uptake in preventive measures and a sustained improvement in cardiovascular risk profiles that follow up of four years. So it's a really good chance to, as you say, to, to, to catch people while they're engaged. Um, they've had a recent scare. Um, and also when they're talking to someone about cardiovascular risk, which which people, I think people often don't do now. I mean, people don't, a lot of people don't go to the GP once a year just for a checkup. So they'll go to the GP when there's a problem. Um, and so, so some of the opportunistic healthcare like this uh, can can get missed. And of course, there's lots of people that, that that never interact with the health system. They don't come to hospital. They don't they don't see GPs. So uh, they might not know their cholesterol is twelve, for example. So how important, Andrew, do you think it is to have both that researcher and clinician or cardiologist focus when you're doing your research. So I think I think the importance is in is really in constantly evaluating what we're doing and making sure it actually works. You know, we spend health spends heaps of money, um, and it's almost like a bottomless pit. You know, 
the more money health is provided with, the more will be used. Um, and I think we've got to be very careful, particularly when we're setting up new initiatives that we're actually using the resources wisely. Um, so something like the chest pain clinic, our assumption would be that we would reduce event rates, uh, that we would reduce emergency department reattendances, um, and and that uh, and you know we've demonstrated that that is the case, but. There would be other alternative methods, you know, not just a general cardiology clinic, but what about just sending all these people home from the emergency department and not following them up again? So, <clears throat> so excuse me. So it's important to actually really evaluate all the options as much as we can, so we make sure we're spending money uh, wisely. Stick with us for part three as we delve more into Andrew's work here in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about heart health today. My name's Ryan, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Andrew Black. Andrew, you were previously telling us about your work on improving chest pain clinics. You've also looked at state-based care improvement. Can you give us a quick illustration of what the Tasmanian STEMI network is? Sure, okay. So a... Uh, a STEMI is basically a big heart attack, so people can have uh, threatened heart attacks or minor heart attacks where there's a narrowing in one of the coronary arteries that supplies blood to the heart muscle itself, um, and then you can have a STEMI. So a STEMI is a big heart attack, basically where the one of the major arteries around the heart is completely occluded. So the importance of that is that if that artery is completely blocked, then the part of the heart supplied by that artery starts to die straight away. Um, if you can open the artery within an hour of it being blocked, then you can usually completely abort the damage. Whereas if the artery is occluded for, you know, probably more than four to six hours, then the heart attack sort of completes itself and you're not going to get a lot of benefit from opening that artery. There may be some benefit out to 12 hours, but not much. Um, untreated, the mortality is really high from a STEMI. Um, and so, so it's really important that we get these arteries open quickly. Now, there's two ways of opening up blocked arteries. One is to open it up with a balloon and a stent in, in the cath lab in the hospital. Um, and the other is to try and unblock the artery using medications, in particular thrombolytic, which is just a really strong sort of clot-busting medication. Now, if you're sitting outside the door of the Alfred Hospital, obviously you go in and you have your artery unblocked with, uh, with a stent. Um, if you're in the middle of nowhere, though, then that then that option's not going to work for you. It's going to take 10 hours to be retrieved to a hospital. Even if you're not that far away, if you're in a town an hour out of Hobart, um, given the transport logistics issues, it's going to be an hour and a half, two hours before you get a stent, so you're still better off doing something else to get the artery open, and that's where, that's where thrombolytic comes in. Now, if you can imagine someone walking into their GP in a small coastal town having a STEMI, there's a whole lot of people involved in that whole process, so it needs to be recognised by the receptionist, that they could be having a STEMI, they need a nurse to do an ECG quickly, someone to recognise the STEMI, activate the retrieval services, get, get ambulance resources out there, which requires often a complex decision between road or air, fixed wing, um, chopper. Um, you, you need to notify the emergency department of where the person's going to, also the cath lab, get all the staff in, clear out any cases that are in there already, um, and then you know organise beds, anaesthetic support. So there's a lot that needs to happen. Um, and so this is a particular uh, situation that benefits from a whole-of-systems approach. The, the situation we previously had in Tassie is we had a reasonably uh, fragmented system, um, and so what we really wanted to do is to implement uh, best practice uh, standards across the state. And, and because we're a relatively small state, it meant that, meant that we could really, you know, there was the opportunity to relatively easily get everyone together. We're not dealing with multiple different health systems. 
Um, and so what we were trying to do is to get better access to thrombolytic across the state in smaller health service facilities. Uh, the ambulance service have now um, have now started administering thrombolysis. So if you're away from a hospital way up the northwest coast of Tassie, you can be given thrombolytic by the uh, by the ambulance service, which is fantastic. And then, of course, importantly, be taken directly to a stent hospital. Um, and then also just doing things to improve the time it takes to get from the door of the hospital into the cath lab. So small things like uh, bypassing the emergency department. So if you're having a STEMI in an ambulance, you don't really want to be sitting in the emergency department for half an hour. You really just need to go to the cath lab and have the artery open. So rather than waiting till the patient gets to ED, then notifying the cath lab. Uh, the cath lab's now notified directly um, and the patient comes, comes straight through to the cath lab rather than sitting in the emergency department. So early days, we've uh, we've had Georgia Hill, who's done a fantastic job working on this uh, for us as a, a as a med student doing her um, uh, doing her B Med Sci honours actually over the last twelve months, and and what she's found is that the treatment times have come down really quite substantially, and 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 you know what we've seen is small reductions in treatment times at the Royal Hobart, which is really just those. It's, it's sort of the tweaking of, of getting the patient to the cath lab slightly quicker. Um, but the really big reductions have been particularly up in the northwest coast of Tassie where there's no, uh, you know, there's no cath lab up there, all the patients are retrieved. And I think that what we're seeing is that rather than there being sort of uncertainty about whether patients should be transferred or thrombolised and, and, and maybe sitting around for a while and being transferred, there's now a lower threshold for people to be thrombolised more quickly. Um, the staff are more confident with thrombolysis um, and so that artery is actually being reopened more quickly in the peripheral centres and then the patients are being transferred in. Um, now that data is before the start of the ambulance project with paramedic-led thrombolysis and I think that again will make an enormous difference um, to some of these really remote areas where it's quite hard logistically to extract patients um, but there's also not, not a lot of medical support the further away you go from the major centres. So it's really looking at like in somewhere like Tasmania where the care you receive in Hobart is so different to Queenstown. Yeah. Um, having kind of like regional outhouses or huts, I'm picturing, but I don't mean that. I mean like it's like a community rugged centre where they can administer life-saving medications without having to have a specialist cardiologist that's in Queenstown, but yep. essentially being guided by a whole group of people behind the phone that are supporting that decision-making process to make sure that patient has the best chance of reaching the right place. Yeah, and being able to be treated quickly with the minimum amount of stuffing around. So, you know, if you're a GP in Swansea at 2 o'clock in the morning with one nurse there dealing with one STEMI a year critically unwell patient the last thing you want to be doing is talking to cardiology registrars and bed coordinators and trying to work out you know whether we send a road ambulance and all the rest of it so it's about having those pathways in place so they call ambulance TAS uh, they'll speak to a retrieval nurse who very quickly puts them on to a retrieval coordinator so they that's a senior doctor who can then provide advice whilst the nurse is in the background organizing the retrieval they don't need to call the hospital they don't need to speak to registrars they you know they don't need to talk to bed coordinators it all just happens and they can concentrate on keeping the patient alive while they're being extracted um, you know, an example would be b before this system, I mean, you know, things that you would think would be obvious, but it, uh, previous to the system being put in place, if a GP in Swansea called with a STEMI, they would go through a triple O prompt operations thing. So rather than just saying, I've got a STEMI, get them out, please, which is really what you want to get out of your mouth, uh, they would go through that sort of, is the patient breathing? Is the patient breathing normally? And it was really a very slow, tedious process when they've got a whole lot of other things that they're, that they're trying to do at the same time. So, Andrew, it sounds like you're really passionate about making big changes and improving the management of heart disease for Tasmanians. 
So where do you see service delivery and cardiovascular disease prevention moving forward? So, yeah, look, I think this is uh, I think this is really important. I mean, Tassie has cardiovascular death rates that are among the highest in the country, so so right up there at the top with the Northern Territory, unfortunately. Um, and, and what we see is that the outcomes get worse the further you go away from the major cities. So people who are living in rural and regional areas, like the rest of the country, get a bit of a bum deal out of the health system because things tend to be concentrated in, in the major centres and the resourcing is, is less the further away you go. Um, I... I think that, you know, in a way what we had to do first was was try and get the pointy end right and really improve the, the care for STEMI patients because that was, um, you know, that's a time-critical emergency that had to be sorted out. So I think that system is working really well now, which is which is due to a whole lot of people working, um, particularly in ambulance, but, but but all of the people working in, in rural and regional Tassie as well. Um, I, I think prevention's a really important issue. So we know that we can prevent a substantial number of heart attacks by getting onto risk factors early um, and in and in particular uh, treating blood pressure um, smoking cessation and our smoking rates in Tassie are pretty high uh, they are coming down like everywhere else but still but still quite high and again higher in rural areas um, and also recognition and treatment of high cholesterol so you know we might have people who've got slightly high cholesterol and they're, they're looking at changing diet and that sort of thing but there's also a lot of people walking around with with genetically set very high cholesterols of more than eight or ten um, there's probably about two thousand or two and a half thousand of those people in in Tassie, um, and it's a case of trying to put in place systems to recognise those people and actually get them on, on on treatment, which substantially reduces their risk of events. So, so we've got to improve the care, but but, but it's it, it's really also moving into trying to actually prevent these events in the first place. Fantastic. So, Andrew, last thing: if someone's listening to this and they're getting a little bit concerned about their heart health, what would you recommend that they go and do? So firstly, um, chest pain needs to be assessed. So if people have got chest pain they're concerned about and they get calls all the time from, from people saying, you know, my friend's got chest pain, what do you think? The answer is always the same. The emergency department's the place to go for chest pain. If you're otherwise fit and well, but you're just a bit worried, you've got a bit of a family history, uh, it's definitely a good idea to go and have a chat to your GP, have your blood pressure measured, have your cholesterol checked, definitely try and stop smoking um, and and have a think about what your absolute cardiovascular risk is. So that's something that you can work through with your GP. All GPs are familiar with absolute risk. Um, and there's various tests that you can do, like a CAT scan of your coronary arteries, to have a look and see if there's plaque, and that's and that's becoming more popular in some settings. But look, a lot of this doesn't need to be overcomplicated. If you've you know if you smoke, stopping smoking dramatically reduces your risk very quickly after stopping smoking. If your cholesterol is very high, treating it dramatically reduces your risk. So there's very simple things you can do to substantially improve your risk without necessarily having a whole lot of expensive tests and, and specific treatments. Fantastic. And if you're listening to the show and feeling motivated to go and see your GP, just remember you can ask for a heart health check and use the Heart Foundation's Heart Health Check Toolkit to help you make decisions about what would be best for you individually. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science as part of our Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation mini-series shining a light on excellent medical research happening in Tasmania. I'd like to thank our expert guest, Dr. Andrew Black, our amazing co-host, Ryan Smith. Until next time, my name's Neve Chapman. Thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.